We are in the book of Romans. Book of Romans. And we just finished Romans chapter 9. We just finished Romans chapter 9. That talks about the glorious and mysterious doctrine of God's sovereign grace and electing love. And we've already, if this is your first service and you're just jumping in. Oh, I want you to get online and go back and listen to the last couple messages leading up to this. I can't repeat them all. But we've already talked about how critical it is to maintain a biblical balance on this doctrine. Keep the balance, keep the balance, keep the balance of all God's word says about this salvation rope that we're looking at. Of both God's sovereign electing love and the responsibility of men and women who are free, real creatures that make real choices and must respond, must believe, must receive, must repent, must choose to follow Christ, must say yes. It's very real. But Romans 9 is telling us about this end of that salvation rope that's just as real even though you don't sense it or experience it. So we've got to hold to the biblical balance. And I said last Sunday, if you choose to hold to the biblical balance of how much that the Bible says, all, you will on many occasions with many different doctrines, you will find yourself standing at a place that has a measure of mystery. If you hold on... To all the verses that talk about God's electing sovereign love. And, I hope you will, you don't let go of this end. Has anybody heard me saying poo-poo on this end? People are born with a flaming H on their chest and they're on their way to hell. And some other people are born with with an H with gold sparklies on it because they're on their way to heaven. It's a done deal. Have I said that? Do some people talk that way? Did I talk that way? Do we believe that with gusto? We're holding on to both ends of this theological rope. This is real. And I preach a gospel to whosoever will may come. I pour my heart out. My heart breaks for lost people. And every person I meet, I consider that it's very real that they could come to Christ. They could come to Christ. And I'm going to try to do what I can to be that ambassador for Christ. But if you hold on to both ends, your brain is going to go, How can both be true? And you're going to be tempted to drop one or or other. And I'll tell you which end most people want to drop. Drop this because that I can't relate to. That makes no sense. I didn't. But over here, I live this. I remember hearing the gospel. I remember feeling convicted. I remember thinking, oh, I'm a sinner. I remember Jesus being beautiful and the gospel being attractive. So they say, this is real. That's not. I'll find ways to explain away those verses. Now, there are some people also who get so fired up about a great big sovereign God. And I'm into a great big sovereign God. But they just start harping on this and this alone. And they find ways to explain away those verses and say, well, it's really not whosoever will may come. You're sitting in a church today, whether this doctrine was new to you or whether it's familiar to you and you hate it. You're sitting in a church today that tries to hold to the biblical balance. Of both. And when you do, there'll be a bit of mystery because I've said it and I'll say it again. We are not trying to build a theological system that satisfies our logic and makes us comfortable. We are trying to hold to all the Bible says and lift up a Savior and preach a gospel of hope to whosoever will may come. That's what we're trying to do here at Grace Fellowship. So, What I want to do today is do one final message 
before we push on into Romans chapter 10. One final message. Because I do think there's still some of you sitting here that buzzing in your head is still this question. So I want to answer a question today. You've still got this question. But Brad, what difference does this doctrine make? If I'd never known this and never read my Bible, what difference does this doctrine make in my life practically? For me personally, why did we wrestle our way through this for so many weeks? Isn't this just some deep doctrine for pastors and theologians and scholars to debate about over lunch when they get together? Why are you bringing it to the church family, to regular people? Well, let me start by reading a quote from J.I. Packer as I answer that question today. J.I. Packer says, No doubt it is easy to get the subject of election out of proportion. No doubt it's often been done. But whether this fact gives us warrant to dismiss the doctrine as really unimportant is another question. It does not look as if Paul would have thought so. If we look again at the text in which he deals with election, we shall see that his attitude to the subject is quite different than ours. To start with, he neither makes an issue of it nor gets embarrassed about it. He is neither puzzled by it or ashamed of it. Paul simply accepts and expounds it as an integral part of the gospel. And when Paul introduces election into his teaching, it is for one end only. To help Christians see how great is the grace that saved them. And to move them to a worthy response in worship and life. Make a note of that. I agree wholeheartedly. Election is taught in the Bible for one purpose, not to start fights, not to win arguments, not for a bunch of chest bumping, and not to split churches. It is for Christians. Notice, when you, when you run into it in the scripture, it's almost always, without exception, in a letter to a group of believers who are already saved. And Paul's saying, uh, let me tell you something you probably didn't know. And fill in some of the gaps of how you arrived where you are. Let me put it to you this way. It is to put the amazing back into grace. Anybody sitting here that could testify? I started off saying, oh, God saved me. I see things differently. I'm forgiven. I'm not on my way to hell. Oh, my goodness. Oh, this is mind-blowingly good news. And it didn't take long before real life kicked you in the head and your world shrunk back down to the size of your latest problem and amazing no longer was in front of the word grace. And if you weren't careful, in fact, you started looking back on that experience and just largely thinking, well, I chose to follow Christ. I made a decision. I I worked my way through an intellectual process. I considered all the options. I looked at spiritual things and religions and, and then I decided to follow Christ. Boom. End of story. Duh. Why don't other people? See, if that's how you think you arrived where you are today, if you're born again and you're a believer, it's kind of hard to keep amazing in front of grace. Paul and the other scripture writers reveal this doctrine to us for one end only, to help Christians see how great is the grace that has saved them and to move you to a worthy response in worship and life. So, I want to answer the question, what difference does it make in my life, this doctrine, by showing you three, three responses that I believe get stirred up when you begin to dig down into the glorious, mysterious doctrine of election. 
three responses that can get stirred up. You said, oh, Brad, I'm, I'm stirred up. I'm talking about three good responses. I think we know well enough the response that gets stirred up that's not good. I'm mad. I disagree. It can't be. Arr! Let's set that one aside. We're, we're good on that usually. Let me show you three positive, helpful, life-changing responses that can get stirred up when you dig down into this glorious and mysterious doctrine of election. Number one. Number one, an understanding of God's electing love cuts the feet out from underneath our pride and cultivates a spirit of genuine humility. You see, folks, the Bible is written to us from someone who knows us better than anyone else, better than your mama. Better than your roommate, better than your spouse, better than your best friend, B-F-F-F-F-F. God knows us. And so, he knows that one of our biggest and most pervasive root sins, not just one of those surface fruit sins, one of our most pervasive root sins that does not go away when you trust Christ. It doesn't die. I wish it did. But it's up to you to keep trying to put it to death till Jesus comes. One of our most pervasive root sins is, say it. Say it like you mean it. Say it like it's you. Thank you. And me too. Pride. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he reveals to us a doctrine that cuts the feet out from underneath our pride. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and 18. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 18 gives us a list. Listen how it starts. These six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I run into the scriptures a list and something saying like that, I sit up. He's about to tell me what God hates. I love God. I say I'm a Christ follower. I want to please him. He's done so much for me. When I run into something, it's like, oh, all right, what does the Lord hate? What is an abomination to him? Now, there's lots of places you can go to the scripture and find lists of sins. You can find it in 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, other places. But right here, he just comes right out and says, let me tell you what the Lord hates. A proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. What sin heads up the list of what God hates the most? Pride. You see the same thing in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians you'll see that he refers to the doctrine of election five times by using the word calling or chosen. Calling or chosen. And then wraps it all up with a bow in verse 29 by telling us, why did I just press this this way? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I do hope you have what? Bible. Bible. Hope you got a Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren. 
That not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised. Let me help you if you've lost track here. He's talking about you. Think, who are these despicable people? You and me. He didn't choose the most mighty, most smart, most noble, most beautiful, most together, most with it. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 29. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Paul knows that he's dealing with a very proud Greek culture and Greek people. That's us still today. They're proud of their heritage. They're proud of their, their, their philosophy and worldly wisdom. And so Paul gives them a wake-up call. Again, who's he talking to? Who's the letter to Corinth written to? Lost people who need the good news of Jesus Christ or people who are already believers who are trying to serve God? Believers. He's right in the church. And he knows that because of how they, how they think, it's, it's just in us, our, our default setting and our hard wiring. He knows that he needs to give them a wake-up call that says, excuse me, let me remind you who you really are and how you actually arrived where you are. Because he knows that as sinners, we, we would be tempted to even take pride in our conversion, in our new birth, in our salvation. And I understand, I'm not, I'm not hammering on you if, you if that's you, because this side of the equation, is it real? Did some of you wrestle your way through the claims of Christ and examine the resurrection, consider other, other religions? And you, I hope you did. Now, some of you were just saved, but some of you... It was, a, it was a journey of wrestling and thinking and asking questions and meeting with a friend and meeting a book. But here's the danger. If you're not careful, you could be guilty of thinking, I, I wrestled my way through. I looked at all the options. I considered all the facts. I weighed all the spiritual alternatives. And I decided to become a Christian. And I prayed the prayer. And I asked Jesus into my heart. Boom. Why don't others? Duh. Paul says, actually, that's not how it happened. There's more. Now, did all that happen? So let me reword it. Actually, that's not the total picture of how that happened. And all he does is, is it basically the scriptures continue to zoom out and give you a wide-angle lens look at salvation instead of your narrow angle, which we can't have anything but narrow because we're finite and we recall what we recall and we're aware of what we're aware of and we know what we know and we experience what we experience. But folks, please consider that there's more going on than what you might know or experience or be aware of. That's what this doctrine does. It's a wide-angle zoom back and say, oh, Oh, God was doing something long before you ever did anything or you never would have done what you did. Did you have to repent? Was it your decision? Are you a robot? 
But he's saying, but God, but God. Now let me show you exactly, if you're still pushing back saying, yeah, I don't agree. I don't mind you not agreeing, but I want you to have to disagree with the scripture, not Brad Bigney and Grace Fellowship. So now look at verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1. In case it wasn't clear, he says that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 30, if you got the New King James, which is what I'm reading, but of him, but of him you are in Christ. How did you get in Christ? How did you get saved? How did you get new life? How were your eyes opened? But of him you are in Christ. The New American Standard which my wife will likely be waving in the third service whenever I refer to it. She's like, yeah, duh, big guy, this is the best. Says it really well. But by his doing, you're in Christ. Could it be any more clear? But but, Now, did you have to do something? That was weak. Did you have to hear the gospel? Do we need to send missionaries to preach the gospel? Because God elects, is it done? No, we must go. And we're going to see that in Romans 10. But he says, But by his doing, you're in Christ. The NIV that probably a lot of you have in your lap says it is because of him that you're in Christ. Mark Webb writes, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man can boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded. Election does precisely that and comprehensively that. Listen to me. You might not like this, some of you, but I think it's true. The fact that this doctrine cuts the feet out from underneath our pride is one of the reasons that I think so many people hate it so, including, dare I say, Christians. Because we don't see ourselves as bad as we are, and we do not see God as mercifully as he is. We think way too highly of ourselves and not highly enough of him. We don't see ourselves badly enough, and we don't see God mercifully enough. So that's the first benefit. That's the first good thing, because I don't know about you, I hope you haven't already checked out and thought, ugh, all right, so it helps me with pride, whatever. I hope some proud people get helped by that. I think I just spoke something that everyone can relate to. I gotta work on my pride. I've got to stay after that. So we're not talking about some tangential issue like, well, whatever. This is the heart of one of our biggest struggles, and this doctrine helps you go to battle against that. Let me show you a second benefit of a proper understanding of God's electing love. When you understand it properly, it chokes out our whining and fills you with gratitude. You say, well, I hope that helps those two whiners in here. (laughs) Again, folks, we are one of the most, go anywhere else in the world. You got to get outside of this nation. We are one of the most complaining nations in the world. Ask a nurse as they try to... Ask a a waitress, ask a stewardess, ask anybody in the serving industry and they'd say, I'm going to lose my mind. We live in the land of the most and complain the most. And becoming a Christian doesn't turn that off. In fact, sometimes becoming a Christian can ramp it up if you're reading the wrong books, watching the wrong people with the wrong kind of hair on TV. 
Because you'd start to think, well, life was supposed to get better. Things were supposed to get better. The king's kids go first class. It ain't happening yet. Well, God, what is going on? And you become a big, fat, sanctified Christian logo fish complainer. Because God just isn't coming through like he's supposed to. What's happening to this Christian formula? It ain't working. Oh, listen to me. A proper understanding of the doctrine of God's electing love will begin to choke out whining and fill you with gratitude. Because when you really begin to understand this doctrine and what God has done for you, you begin to realize there's nothing else in the world I should be complaining about. Because my biggest problem has already been solved. I'm not on my way to an eternal hell. On your worst day. With everything going wrong, the wheels coming off, everything coming unraveled, nothing's going your way. You can still say, it's a really good day because I'm not in hell and I'm not on my way to hell and can never be because who he saves, he keeps. Wow. Say wow. 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 This will help. This doctrine will help. You stop and think about it. Do you realize the God of the universe saw you? The God of the universe saw you and stopped you in your willful, stubborn, rebellious rush towards the gates of hell. And he placed his love on you, not because you were so lovable. Not because he saw anything about you that caught his attention and drew him to you. Oh, he saw something about you. He saw your stinking, filthy sin that was against him and his son. He saw what put his son on the cross. He saw you in that crowd at the foot of the cross. Because had you been there, this is what you've been doing. Shaking your fist and rejecting the son of God. And yet with that attitude as an enemy, as a sinner, as an alien, far from God. He placed his love and mercy on you. God didn't love you because you first loved him or were so lovable. That's what makes it so amazing. And the scripture makes it clear that God's love and mercy was placed on you simply and solely because of his own great mercy. And you say, on what basis? Why? Why did he do this? Well, we don't have to guess. It's not like, well, let's take some guesses at it. Let's see what makes sense to us He doesn't leave us to guess because he tells us exactly why he placed his love on you if you're a Christian and his mercy. According to. Look for all those verses that say according to because it's telling you why. On what basis? What? According to his own good pleasure to the praise of the glory of his grace. See, when this doctrine really gets a hold of you, it's a call to worship that leaves you undone and dropping to your knees in humility and gratitude, not up on your feet for a theological fight. Peter describes exactly what is supposed to characterize the people of God. Not a big fat head full of Bible knowledge and the ability to draw amazing charts for Daniel and Revelation. No. You want to know what's supposed to characterize the people of God? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And then the word that. Whenever you see the word that or in order that, it's a purpose clause. 
Now, he's just told you something wonderful, and he's going to tell you to what end. Why? For what purpose? He's going to tell us that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm telling you what. When you truly begin to understand, yes, I prayed, yes, I believed, yes, I I thought some things through. But when you realize that God was a part of that picture and if God had not done what God had done, you would have never done what you've done. It causes you to want to praise him that you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Some of you wonder why I just can't get that excited about God. You know why? There's too much of you at the center of all your theology and not enough God. Listen to me, if you can get past the initial human urge, I can relate to it, I'm a human being. I am a real person, believe it or not, even though I'm a pastor. I have have the same urges, difficulties, hardwiring, default setting, sin nature. If you can get past the initial human urge to fight against this doctrine, you will find that this doctrine feeds a fervent spirit of gratitude, humility, and praise. And that's the third thing I want to show you. When you understand properly the doctrine of God's electing love, oh, listen to me, it sharpens your focus and fuels a lifetime, and I'm wording this carefully, of white, hot, God-centered Worship. I didn't just say worship. You go to so many churches today, and I had the opportunity last summer to do that on sabbatical. And I went to some good churches, and I heard some good teaching and preaching. But i tell you what I didn't see much good at all, and was so happy to come back to my home church, is worship that was God-centered. So much of it's a show. It's, it's the electric guitar player and his amazing solo. I don't want to see your amazing solo. I'm here to worship God. So many of the songs are so dippy and they're all about us, 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 us. I don't know if you've picked up on it. If you've ever thought, why does Grace Fellowship keep singing so many songs about salvation? All right, already we're saved. When you understand the doctrine of God's electing love, you don't ever get over it. There's nothing you'd rather sing about and, I'm, and I don't know if you noticed it. I hope I'm not deceived. It's not just me. Certain phrases in songs and certain truth, that's when our hands go up. When you realize, he saved me. The wrath of God has turned back. His mercy's on me. He found me. He arrested me. I was on my way to hell. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Some of you are like, hallelujah. I have my intellectual and my fine-tuned skills of making the decisions and Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Hard to get your hands up when you, it's like, it was a lot about me. And thank you, Jesus, for your part, which I know had to happen. When you see it more like, I would have kept going this way all the way to hell had he not worked. And I'm, please don't hear me saying everybody's hands have to go up. If your personality is reserved and for you, this is, okay, I promise I'm going nuts inside, big guy. <laughs> I am. I am. You don't know. I mean, I'm bouncing off the inside walls of this shell right now. Okay, I'll allow that. Except if last night during the UK game, oh, you got up and you're like, oh, yes. Yes, he made those two free throws. Yes. And yes, 
Notre Dame didn't make that three-pointer right at the end. (gasps) If you get more excited other places, shut up about going nuts like this. Oh, I got you. Oh, now what you going to do, huh? Little worship chest bump. So I want to allow for different personalities, folks. I do. But I have a problem with you're one thing somewhere else. And the real deal is you just don't get that excited here about salvation. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. I don't expect everyone to be as sweaty and frothy as me. Unless you're that sweaty and frothy other places about other things. If you never felt like worshiping before, you do when you understand this great doctrine. Because this doctrine was meant and designed for who? Unbelievers or Christians? Christians to invoke white hot worship, not to provoke a theological fight. God didn't reveal the doctrine of election to us. To start fights and feed egos and split churches. That misses the point altogether. John Stott in his commentary on Romans says this. Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election. And theologians are unwise to systematize it in a way such that no puzzles, enigmas or loose ends are left. At the same time, election is an indispensable foundation of Christian worship in time and eternity. News alert. We're going to sing about this in eternity also. It's not going to hit stop and say, done. It'll be one of the main things that keeps us frothy all through eternity. That God saved us. That God saved us. That God had mercy on us and made us his people. It is the essence of worship to say, not unto us. Not unto us, O Lord. But to your name be glory. If we were responsible for our own salvation, either in whole or in part... We would be justified in singing our own praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. But such a thing is inconceivable. Which brings us back to Princess Private again. (laughs) God's redeemed people will spend eternity worshiping him, humbling themselves before him, in great flatteration before him and to the Lamb, and acknowledging that he alone is worthy to receive all praise and honor and glory. Why? Because our salvation is due entirely to his grace, his will, his initiative, his wisdom, and his power. You say, okay, that's a great quote from John Stott, Brad. Where does the Bible talk that way at all? Glad you asked. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see these two things tied together. The doctrine of God's electing love and sovereign grace being something that's supposed to provoke and invoke worship. Worship. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. And you know what I'm going to do? We stand when we sing songs because it's worship. I want you to stand as I read this because it's worship. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he's made us accepted in the beloved. In him, we have redemption 
through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, in him, in whom also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You may be seated. Three times, Paul says, To the praise of his glory, riches of his grace, according to his own counsel and purposes. Praise of his glory, riches of his grace, according to not, he saw you were going to choose him. You look like a pretty good girl, woman. No. It'll fuel a lifetime of white, white hot, God-centered Worship with God no longer on the edge of your Christian life and theology and thinking, but at the center. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is really, folks, one long, uninterrupted outburst of praise as Paul was thinking and writing about the grace of God that has been extended to us. Let me put it to you this way. When the doctrine of God's electing love and sovereign grace grips you as it should... You don't clench your fists for a fight. You throw up your hands in praise. Praise. Bruce Milne writes of this passage and says, Paul is not standing at his desk engaged in dialectical argumentation. Rather, he is on his knees, lost in adoring worship. Terry Johnson to answer that question, it's like, what difference does it make in my life? Personally, so what? Terry Johnson gives his own testimony of what this doctrine did in his life. He says this, where, where, where does a true comprehension of the doctrines of grace lead us? To our knees in worship. Perhaps one reason why so few are motivated to worship God with fervor is that, oh, this is so good. Track with me here. Is that we have reduced God... To a slightly larger version of ourselves. He can be comprehended by our logic. He works within the bounds of our rules and reasons. He's so much like us. We see no real reason to worship him. It is pathetic. But true. What practical difference does the doctrine of election make? Oh, it will make you a worshiper when you come to realize that the God who is there is not subject to your desires, that he's sovereign over your eternity. And when you realize the greatness of his mercy and grace, you will begin to long for genuine worship, worship that prostrates you and exalts God. Your soul will crave and demand worship that is God-centered, that is filled with high praise. When once you grasp the greatness of the sovereign God, your worship will be transformed 
because you will be transformed hereafter to have the perspective of one who lives on his knees. What about you? Do you have a perspective of one who lives on your knees? Or do you spend most of your time on your feet fighting with God over how he should be and what he should do? See, too often, too often we're so busy trying to tell God how to be God There's not enough place in our lives for falling before God on our face and just saying, oh, God, thank you. For a lot of you, the bulk of your time is spent saying, oh, God, why don't you? Oh, God, why didn't you? And oh, God, you should. Oh, God, why don't you? And why didn't you? And you should. You're so busy trying to tell God how to be God. You've made little place in your life for being on your face before God in adoring worship. When this doctrine grips you, you're more likely to get on your face and say, oh, thank you. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was in darkness, but now I'm in light. I was an alien, a foreigner, an enemy on my way to hell, but now I'm an adopted son or daughter with a robe of righteousness and the perfection of Christ is mine and in my account. And when the God of the universe, who's holy and righteous and just and almighty, looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and sings over me. Oh, God, thank you. What difference does it make in my life? Oh, my goodness. We looked at it last week in Romans 11, but I want you to look there again as we close. Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. Because I want you to see again, how does Paul conclude this whole section of the book of Romans? Remember, we're in a section And the section goes from 9 to the end of 11. We're going to skip ahead and look again at how does he conclude this section on the sovereignty of God? Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. Oh! Does your version begin with the word oh? Good, you got a good one. Oh! After Paul has talked through some of these hard things, if you truly understand the implications of what he's saying, your response is, Oh, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For of him, from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. I do believe one of the reasons... That a spiritual snore is what emanates from a lot of the church, particularly in America today. Seriously, who's truly excited about Jesus and God? It's just a snore. Is because so few Christians have the, oh. When, when, when God comes up or the things of God, it's a who? Of ignorance, because they're not reading their Bible, they don't know him. Or it's a... So what of indifference? Because there's so much of them at the center. In in the landscape of America, go look at the best-selling books in the Family Christian Bookstore. Turn on the TV with the people that have hair and huge crowds. 
We're at the center. God's on the edge. And at best, he's some kind of cosmic bellhop that's there to meet your needs and respond to you. Or a glorified Santa Claus that's just scurrying around taking care of you. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. And it leaves you with very little. Oh, what difference does this make? Listen, this doctrine, when you understand it properly, cuts the feet out from underneath our pride. Need any help with that? I do. And starts to cultivate genuine humility. It shuts your complaining mouth. I need help. I bet you need help. And fills you with gratitude on your very worst day that you can say, oh my goodness. See, so many Christians live with an attitude of what's God done for me lately? You know why? Because what he did initially to save them wasn't that exciting to them because it's so much them. I kind of did that. I need God to show up now to prove that he loves me. Oh, when you understand this, you realize if God never did another thing for me, I live every day with an oh, oh, oh. And it'll stir white hot, passionate worship. If you can get past the initial urge to fight, listen to me, this doctrine will bring you to your knees in humility, gratitude, and praise. Father, thank you for your word that doesn't just tell us how to get saved, doesn't just give us the good news and and assure us that you must repent and command us to repent and believe and follow, but also pulls back the curtain of eternity and says, hey, there was more going on than you were aware of. God chose you. God found you. You, God placed his love on you long before you gave any thought to him. God is a merciful, almighty, sovereign God worth risking for, worth giving your life for, worth telling other lost sinners about. God, stir us to be people that proclaim the praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.